This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we come before you now as weak mortals. We pray that we would be able to fix our eyes upon you. Many times we feel that we cannot even look up, like the psalmist said. But we know that you can give us and grant us a measure of faith, that you can grant repentance unto Israel, and we ask for that now. We ask for clarity of thought, for conviction where that is needed. May any hardened heart truly be broken through and cut to the heart by your Spirit. And may, we, may the discouraged and despairing find hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time, we looked at how Enoch was a pattern or a rep- representative of us, all of us. If you're living in the last days, which we are right now, then you are to live the life of Enoch. Enoch was translated to heaven without seeing death, right? And if, when Jesus comes, Lord willing, in our lifetime, we will tr- be translated to heaven also without seeing death. There are numerous things about Enoch that we pattern as well. I won't repeat all of those. You can, by the way, listen to all of these sessions that we've been going through this week on Audioverse or on gycweb.org once they get that posted. And the PowerPoints also will be posted as well. But a couple of things I wanted to re emphasize about Enoch that were absolutely essential. This might come as a surprise to some people, but Enoch actually perfected a righteous character. That that was actual uh, words, word for word, perfected a righteous character, and there was, quote, not a thread of coarseness or selfishness. That was page 3 and 41 in there. How much of coarseness and selfishness? Not a thread. So this man became perfectly matured in his character. The the kind of person that God is working in all of us to be, the Bible says that he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And Enoch experienced that. But that makes me ask the question, is that even possible? I mean, come on. Whose actual experience in day-to-day life, certainly not mine, would say that this is something that is real and plausible and actually possible? Well, we read in the book, and first of all, numerous, numerous scriptures point that out. And if you missed the session on Friday, do pick that audio up and make sure to listen to it. But remember the statement also in this book that said, God is going to get each one of us, if we consent, he will get each one of us to the point where in doing his will, we are carrying out our own, do you remember what it was? Our own impulse. Wow, that would be awesome. That's like being addicted to purity, right? Addicted in, in, in quotes there. Being so uh, habitually, compulsively accustomed to doing what God wants us to do that we become a new creation fully and completely. We also saw that those who will be translated at the close of time will always be representing him in all their life practices. Selfishness will be cut out by the roots. Isn't that a wonderful promise? So this is not only possible, my friends, this is necessary. Let me read to you from page 41. Enoch's life and character were so holy that he was translated to heaven without seeing death. This life and character represents what the lives and characters of all must be if, like Enoch, they are to be translated when Christ shall come. So did you hear what that was just saying? Christ is going to do a work in all of us, and it must happen before he returns, and that is the finishing touches 
upon the character that he is forming within us. And I know as soon as I start saying things like this, immediately we, we feel a sense of, uh, of fear and insecurity and I couldn't do this. I couldn't pull that off. That's actually a good impulse right there. I couldn't. Because if we start saying, oh yes, the doctrine of sanctification, I can handle that one, then we're in big trouble. If we, if we start saying, oh, a wretched man that I am, who can rescue me from this body of death? That turns our eyes upon Jesus. And when we fix our eyes upon him, he is the author of our faith and the what of our faith? The finisher. Yes. So the quote goes on. You can read this whole book. It's published by Teach Services, Inc. Wonderful, Living the Life of Enoch. I'm not going to read the whole book to you, but this is a similar one here on page 59 that I wanted to share with you just to emphasize and underscore the point. It says that when we are having this experience of sanctification, if you will, it was, it was as if Enoch himself, he was a marked character, and many looked upon his life, many look upon his life, sorry, presently, we look upon his life as something above what gen the generality of mortals can ever reach. So most people look at that, okay, that's, that's one guy, oh, and Elijah, two guys who really stood out in their development, their relationship with Christ, that they walked so closely with Jesus Christ that they got to the point where they could just walk right into heaven. Well, that's two, and that's all there's ever going to be. Is that what we just read? This is the experience all must have if they will be prepared to be translated when Jesus comes. It says this here, Enoch's life and character represent the lives and characters of all who will be translated when Christ shall come. Now, to many people, this sounds like bad news because they're going, well, that means I won't make it into heaven. You know what we're focusing on at that point? Our own incapacities. You have to immediately turn the, uh, the attention upon Jesus Christ who has all the power in the universe. Do you think he's able to do that? Do you think he's willing to do it? Then why would he not, right? So some pretty awesome quotes there in the book. But Enoch himself, he was a peculiar man. And you've got to be pretty peculiar to be able to stand out as much as he did. And he didn't, he didn't consult his own plans. He didn't consult his own ideas of what to do. It says Enoch and Elijah became very different from the world in their plans. And their objectives in life were also different. What is your purpose in life? As you're at GYC, at the beginning of a new year, thinking about the future of your life, what if somebody were to ask you, what is the aim and purpose of your life? What motivates you every morning when you wake up? What do I do and why do I do it? Who am I? Enoch's and Elijah's mindset was totally different. It wasn't about, well, I'm going to carry on business and make a living doing this and I have some friends and, you know, just everyday run-of-the-mill things. No, they had a high, high purpose and calling, and they, they surrendered and submitted that to God. Enoch did not mark out his own course or set up his own will as if he thought himself fully qualified to manage matters. But then we saw yesterday also he spent much of his time in, do you remember? Solitude, yes, which he devoted to reflection and prayer. And we read that God's messengers must tarry long with him, wait, remain long with Jesus if they would have success in their work. We read about the eloquence of, do you remember it? Silence. Boy, have you read this book? He's got the answers right there. Thank you, brother. Eloquence of silence before God. And then we read not, oh, this one's hard for me. This is hard for those of us who are active-minded people who like to think and uh, make plans and dream dreams and do things and we are not to keep the mind in a continual state of excitement. Slow down, take a deep breath, be still, and know that I am God. Well, that's what we talked about last time. Enoch didn't just spend time, though, 
studying for the sake of studying? What did he learn? What did he pursue as a part of his quiet time, his devotional time, whatever you want to call that, with Jesus as he walked with Jesus day by day and had these special seasons of prayer, of searching his heart and the searching gaze of God, asking him to speak into his life. What was his focus? It says on page four, the infinite, unfathomable love of God through Christ became the subject of his meditations. Day and night. So that's not just during that time. And with all fervor of his soul, with all the fervor of his soul, he sought to reveal that love to people among whom he dwelt. So what did he dwell upon? The love of God. That was the ultimate meditation of Enoch daily. So whatever trial you're facing, whatever temptation you're facing, don't think about it as a battle over that thing. Just turn the attention upon Christ and dwell upon his love. That thought will replace the impure thought. We have emphasized that again and again because that's the most important point when it comes to overcoming habits of thought. It's replacing it with something different and having, as Isaiah said, behold, I will do a new thing. I will have rivers in the wilderness. You know, Enoch also was a worker. He was not just a, a monk that, that just kind of sat you know, in solitude all the time. It says Enoch was an active worker. He did not seek ease and comfort. He did not participate in the festivities and amusements. Well, isn't that a lesson for us? You're going to hear about that in some of the testimonies. Boy, do I have some testimonies for you. Enoch walked with God, and he bore a message of warning to the inhabitants of the world. That's what we're doing, isn't it? So if you want to have a more empowered effect in your mission work, in your witnessing, which we all ought to, walk with God, live the Enoch life, and you will have that same power he had. Now, he mastered the most important discipline of all in the Christian life. And I say the most important discipline of all. That's kind of a, that's a high st- st- statement, a strong statement right there. What would you say is the most important discipline of all in the Christian life? I would say morning time with Jesus, personal time with Jesus, and that prayer time, that devotional time is huge. But you know what's even more important? We read it in Desire of Ages on the screen the other day. The moment by moment experience of continual connection with Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate meaning of what it means to be a Christian, to have Jesus as our friend and companion. I want to just, that's, if I could have like wave a magic wand, if you will, and have a, 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 the, the, give you one thing, you know, if, if you could have one wish, you know, you hear these fantastical stories when you're kids about wishes and, you, oh, I would wish for a, you know, a mansion and a garage full of, you know, sports cars or whatever. No, the ultimate thing would be to truly master this discipline of never forgetting the presence of Jesus with me, never having a moment where I'm disconnected from him, because that always precipitates sin. You remember that quote from yesterday? If you become disconnected from Jesus, you will do the enemy's bidding. If you remain connected with Jesus, you will not. I mean, that's a stark line right there between living the Christian life and a failing life. So he lived this moment-by-moment connection with Jesus. Let me read to you about it on page 77. It says, the mind should be kept in a prayerful frame. So you start the day that way and keep it that way. Looking to Jesus moment by moment, asking at every step, is this the way of the Lord? This is the way Enoch walked with God. So every thought I have, every conversation I have, every literal place I go, am I asking the question, is this the way of the Lord? Consulting him at every step of the day. So he prayed continually. That's what the Bible says, right? Pray without ceasing. You know, the the thing that really trips us up, though, it's like, how can I really 
remain in the presence of Jesus all day when I'm so busy? I mean, I have so many things to do, so many things running through my head. Listen to this on page 22 of Living the Life of Enoch. This helps me because I tend to get myself very busy. It says the following, Many fail of imitating our holy pattern because they study so little the definite features of that character. So many are full of busy plans, always active, and there is no time or place for the precious Jesus to be a close, dear companion. They do not refer every thought and action to him, asking, is this the way of the Lord? Enoch walked with the unseen God in the busiest places of the earth. His companionship was with Christ. The men who have the most to do, so if you have a busy schedule, lot to do, lots of classes, whatever, the men and women who have the most to do have the greatest need of keeping God ever before them. Amid all the confusion and rush of busyness, they will find a quiet resting place. That's a good one right there. To truly walk with God is our ultimate spiritual discipline. Now you might say, okay, it, this sounds like those kind of Christians that are like super Christians. There's kind of two classes of Christians. This is how I grew up thinking at least. There's people who are saved. They came on an altar call. They've confessed and had their sins forgiven and they're a Christian. They believe in Jesus. They believe he died for them on the cross, and you kind of live an average life. Then there's like the ultra-super Christians who are like always talking about their missionary work, and they're uh, studying their Bibles a whole lot more than I do. You know, this distinction is not even biblical at all. To be a Christian means to be Christ-like. To be this other thing you might call Laodicean, you might call lukewarm, you might call dying. You might call what Jesus said in Matthew 7 when he said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we were Christians, weren't we? We did all of these things for you. But he might say to them, I never knew you. Page 23 sums this up really, really succinctly when it says, How did Enoch gain this sweet intimacy? It was by having thoughts of God continually before him. The life of the soul depends upon habitual communion with God. So there's no other category of living the Christian life in kind of a nominal way. The life of the soul depends upon habitual communion with God. So in other words, we will die. That is what I was getting at a moment ago. How about this one? The priests and rulers needed an experience as Enoch had. Meaning in Jesus' day, the rabbis, the, the, the chief priests, teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they needed a continual sense of the presence of God. Those who have an abiding trust in Christ will, like Enoch, have a sense of the abiding presence of God. Our experience in divine things. Ooh, this is a good one. This would be the one to memorize so far of all of them. Our experience in divine things will be in proportion to the vividness of our sense of his companionship. Did you catch that? How vivid, how real to you is the presence of Jesus in your life? The more vivid that is, the more positive experience you'll have in divine things. The more faint the thoughts of Jesus are, the weaker will be our experience in divine things. You know, but many people will say, but, but my students would say, but Mr. Ritzema, I used to teach Bible and various other subjects. My students say, Mr. Ritzema, I don't feel, I don't feel close to God. I don't feel the presence of Jesus. I don't feel that he's real. It says for Enoch, it wasn't about feeling. On page 89, it says, walk by faith and not by feeling, and his peace will come into our hearts. Faith, not feeling. You know, I, I thought about this thought, this issue of feeling. 
our culture tells us in the 21st century that unless there is some emotional feeling associated with something, then it's not real. Many times you will look to Christ in faith and you won't feel some elated feeling. But you will feel a sense of the constant surrender to Him, that peace that He brings, even though it's not an overwhelming feeling. It is real. Trust it by faith that He is there. Has He said He will be here? Always? Even to the very end of the age? If He said it, He is, the Bible says He cannot lie. So you can take it to the bank. Well, this takes some training of the mind as we close the Enoch portion here. On page 25, this didn't come overnight to Enoch. He lived for a while and day by day grew into this experience. It says the following on page 25. It says, When in perplexity he prayed to God to keep him and to teach him his will. What shall I do to honor thee, my God, was his prayer. He was submerged in God's will constantly his meditations were upon the goodness, upon the perfection, upon the loveliness of the divine character. His conversation was upon heavenly things, and he trained his mind to run in this channel. Did you hear that part? We've been talking a lot about the brain and the pathways in the brain this week when it comes to the habits of thought, of lust, and any addictive habit. He trained his mind to run in a holy channel of thoughts of the divine character. That's the only solution ultimately to this problem of sin, is having a whole new brain map, a whole new map of roads and pathways that our thoughts go down, that are channeled, that are widened, that are created to get, make it our habit to think upon Christ. One more quote on this. By the way, did you hear the part about his conversation was on heavenly things? I've spent a lot of time with youth. In my, that was, I was a teacher for uh, 11 years or so, and one thing that I always challenged my students on, and this, this is youth and adults, is you can judge, you can assess the spirituality of you and those around you by what the conversations tend to revert to. When you're hanging out with the guys, for example, if you pretty much usually just talk about sports and talk about what's going on with your friends and what's going, you know, just kind of like meaningless, empty things, vain things, then you know that it's spiritually empty. But when we get back to those conversations of what's coming out of our hearts, because I've spent this time with Christ, then I want to talk about how can we advance the work of God? What are we doing to overcome sin? What can we, doing, what can we be doing to bless others to do the will of God in our lives? Here's the quote. Day by day, Enoch was growing away from his own way into Christ's way. The heavenly divine in his thoughts and feelings. He was constantly inquiring, is this the way of the Lord, as we saw earlier. But did you hear the part? Day by day, he was growing into this. So this isn't an overnight, miraculous, magical thing. Yes, Christ taking my sins to the cross and the justification and forgiveness of my sins, that's immediate and instant. But then God works within the physiology of our, of our neurological pathways. And he says, I'm going to create in you a new mind and a right spirit, a new heart. I'm going to give you the experience of living the Enoch life. What a promise. What a wonderful gift. Now, many have begun to receive this gift. I have in my hands, does that sound like a thick stack of paper or a skinny one? Oh, I'm so thrilled about how many of you emailed me. It took me a long time to go through them. And I enjoyed and relished every moment of it because I'm going, how can I include all of this in the short time we have? 
If you're not f- familiar with what I'm talking about, I ask folks to email me their victory stories of overcoming lust. And a lot of this has to do with pornography. A lot of this has to do with masturbation. Some of it just has to do with overcoming the lust of the eyes. But I want to share those with you. And another thing that I need to do is answer your questions. I almost forgot to do that. I'm going to answer your questions first, and then go right into the testimonies, okay? First person asks, Was the feminist movement, by the way, the first session we talked about the 60s and 70s, 1960s and 70s feminist movement and the agenda that that, that had to basically deny the existence of gender differences. So the masculine and the feminine could be merged, could be there's no difference between the two kind of idea. So uh, the person asks, was the feminist movement partly a legitimate reaction to oppression of women in history? I am so glad that that person brought that up because absolutely, when I used to teach history to my students, we would go through the societies and cultures throughout history that have repressed and oppressed the weak among them, Uh, whether that be the enslaved populations, whether that be child sacrifice and taking advantage of children, or whether that be the oppression of women. And where godly masculinity is about protection and uplifting of others, These cultures have done the opposite, and there has been a whole lot of that in history. So, yes, 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 the pages of history are filled with societies like this, where women were mistreated, where they were oppressed, absolutely. Um, Most recent, by the way, there are different waves of feminism. So I was just talking about the 60s and 70s one, where there's a lot of weirdness, a lot of wrongness. In fact, there's a lot of spiritualism going on behind the women's movements of the 60s and 70s. When I record my series this year called Second Beast Rising, I was talking about that the other day, basically getting into all the current events, what's going on in our world in setting the stage for Revelation 13 and how near Christ's coming is. I've been really emphasizing those themes lately because I want to be ready and I want others to be ready. But as, as a social scientist, political scientist, I want to look at this and go, okay, time out. What really happened? What was really behind that movement in the 60s and 70s? It was a spiritualist movement. I've got a whole lot of info on that that I don't have time for right now. But back to the question, basically, yeah, that 60s and 70s feminism uh, had a lot of uh, evil aspects to it. But if you go back to, say, first wave feminism in the 1900s, you have statements from Spirit of Prophecy that were echoing some of those movements. Like, you remember the quote from day two, was it? Or session two of the, of the first day this week? That uh, a woman, a wife of a pastor, who's doing a lot of labor for the Lord, and she's having to hire laborers and, and cooks and, and maids for her home, and she's working for the Lord, she should be making equal pay. That was ultra-progressive for the time, in a good sense of the word. And so we come out of that movement to a great degree of 19th century reform movements. There was a lot of dietary reform. There was the abolitionist movement that Adventists were uh, excited about the freeing of the slaves and so on, and the the equality of the races as that developed within our church. And so this early wave of feminism, positive, some of the more stuff, more negative. And not, not all positive, it's all mixed, but nonetheless, I'll leave that. But here's the result. We saw the result on uh, Thursday this week. After you had the feminist movement, 60s and 70s, coming in, slamming down masculinity and saying there's no such thing, basically you had two reactions. One, you have the sitcoms and the advertisements all come in and create a basically dumbed down, weak, passive, male, art, 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 what do you call it, um, archetype. Um, but, but then also there was the 
overreaction on the other side of the spectrum of the, the men's movements of hyper-masculinity, this, this fierce male, this wild-at-heart concept. And, and we're going to be just like the animal kingdom where the lions are ripping you know, the animals apart. And we're going to watch Gladiator and we're going to watch uh, you know, Braveheart and get into all of this muscular Christianity, as it was called. So those two were the response of the feminist movement. Isn't it amazing to watch how everything is monopolized by satanic influences? There's only one place that you can go for the pure truth, and that's the Word of God. When you look at all the world's movements, it's all tainted at best, and that's what happened there. So we need to have a balanced biblical understanding that doesn't go in either of these opposite directions of basically denying all masculinity and men just become passive versus the uh, hyper-masculinity of muscular Christianity. These terms I'm throwing out there, by the way, listen to the other sessions if you've missed them, and you'll get caught up to speed on some of that. But here's a statement. Basically, I did those two sessions at the beginning of this week because I want us men to get back to the Word of God and be given permission by the truth in the Word of God to be men, to be true men of God once again, not on either of these sides of these overreactions. Listen to this from Education, page 57. The greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Isn't that awesome? That's what we need. That's what we need to be, men. But such a character is not the result of accident. It is not due to special favors or endowments of providence. Yes, we've been created with unique brains, but that doesn't make us holy, does it? A noble character is the result of self-discipline, of the subjection of the lower to the higher nature. Is that not what we're talking about with the lust stuff here? If we're captive by lust, we're going to be totally decapacitated. We're going to be totally uh, spiritually neutered, if you will, in the strength and power that Jesus Christ in our lives. So the surrender of self for the service of love to God and man. That's our ultimate aim. Another question. Scott, can lust also be a good thing? Very good question. The Greek word for lust simply means a desire. And so technically, the Greek word could mean a holy desire or an unholy desire. Jesus said that he desired to eat the Passover with his disciples. And that was the same Greek word used for lust. The English word tends to have, obviously, sinful connotations. But you can have holy desires, of course. You desire to go to GYC in December. You're excited to come. You desire your wife, a holy sexual attraction. You desire to go to the Passover, as Jesus did. Um, these desires can be a good thing. But I should mention this. Uh, when, when we use the word, like when I say a greater lust, a greater lust, meaning the Greek version of that, the Greek orientation of the word, connotations of the word, to say that it's a holy desire. We need to, repl we need to replace our base desires with a holy desire. I think the person's question was mainly getting at the question of, is it okay to sexually desire your wife? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's part of God's design for us. Be careful also with the excesses of the marriage relation. There is an element of that in Spirit of Prophecy, but this is, uh, it's, a, it's the marriage relation. She calls it the marriage privilege sometimes. Do, do your DVDs on lust give a solution on how to break sexual habits? Yeah, that's the whole purpose behind putting out a greater lust. I hope it does that. I hope we've done that to a certain degree this week. But there's six hours on the A Greater Lust series, so we haven't been able to unpack all of that. But after sundown at the booth, 
Make sure to pick that up. By the way, guys in the room who are students and so on and so forth, don't let the financial aspects get in the way, okay? I want every guy in here to walk away with a set of a greater lust. So all of the, 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 the business aspects and funding aspects aside, here on the Sabbath, I'm saying to the men in the room, come to the booth. And, and I want you to make, sure, to make sure you have a copy of that so that you can watch all of it. You know, we've only scratched the surface, really, on, on principles and tips and, 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 and concepts for overcoming. Next question. Is flag football okay? <laughs> we talked about sports. Yes. <laughs> that's probably been the part of the entire series that's been the most controversial. I thought I would be getting some flack for being in, uh, you know, politically incorrect and so on and so forth about the gender issues, but a lot of people have not been happy with me about quoting Spirit of Prophecy on, on football and on sports and so on and so forth. Let me just say this on this. I'm not going to be the arbiter, the, the guy on the mountaintop saying this is what's okay and this is what's not. I'll, all, pretty much all I did in the seminar and what I want to reinforce again is just go to, the, go to inspiration, okay? Don't consult your opinion. Don't consult my opinion. Consult what the Lord has revealed to us. And it gives some very specific guidelines on the dangers and excesses of competitive sports of, uh, you know, I won't rehash all the quotes, but basically they're all in session, what was that? That was the beginning of session three, okay? Listen to those quotes again, I've collected them, or there will be a PowerPoint up, even better. View them on the PowerPoint, read it for yourself, and how's that for not answering a question? <laughs> I'm tempted right now to, to get more into my thoughts on it. Should I say something? What, what, give, give me some thoughts. What, talk to me. Yeah. Okay. All right. The brother is testifying, and, and weigh this, and think through this. He's saying, and, and this has been my experience too in, in academies, uh, it doesn't matter, you know, Mrs. White spoke specifically against football and boxing, because they're schools of brutality. So football is out completely, like regular football. But then the person asks, well, what about flag football? I actually had an image of flag football on the screen. He's like, hmm. Um, the, the brother here is saying it, 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 it brings about, has a tendency, and that's the word Mrs. White used, a tendency, meaning this is a, a reaction that takes place commonly. She, she also uses the phrase almost sure results. Um, this is a tendency for highly competitive thoughts of, I'm going to beat you to come into place. I'm going to beat you? Can you imagine Jesus saying that or thinking that? I want you to lose. I'm going to be better than you. That's kind of like out of Isaiah 14, isn't it? I will ascend above the clouds. I will ascend above the stars. I will sit enthroned on the most high, as the most high. That's Lucifer's upward climb. Jesus said, I will come down and be, like, be in, found in nature as a human, and I will become obedient to death, even death on a cross. So in our games, in our recreation, let's find ways to reflect the principles of Jesus, of self-sacrifice, of cooperation, rather than competition. So there's just some thoughts on that. But uh, yeah, be careful. Be very, very, very careful. Always err on the side of caution and, and ask yourself, how do you interact with the sports concepts? So, okay, testimonies. This is probably my favorite part of the whole, the whole um, seminar because this is where it's very, very real. Eric emailed me, fake names, pseudonyms, okay? Eric says, my folks got me a TV and a VCR for Christmas when I was 12. A joy at the time, I now know it was a curse. I realized that with the special spliced cable I was using, I could somehow watch pay-per-view pornography for free many times. 
A friend also showed me how to look at pornography on the internet. Yet another very sad moment in my history, the next 12 to 13 years of my life saw me constantly struggling with sexual sin, mostly revolving around pornography and self-abuse. Boy, did Sister White get that term right. I also found it easy to get involved in sexual relationships with girls because I was seriously over-sexualized. That's so true in our culture today. I mean, if you're exposed to any media, you are already over-sexualized just because it's being thrown at us constantly. I just saw this stuff as normal. Even after I was married and involved in marital relations with my, my wife, I continued my pornography obsession. So young men, remember, millions of married men are still struggling with this. Becoming married and having the marital privilege does not heal your sin. He goes on, this almost destroyed my marriage. My wonderful wife felt that she was constantly competing. Her self-image suffered greatly. And this is very true because you can't measure up to that, right? Sadly, though, we were both from SDA homes. Neither of us knew the Lord well, nor had any idea, meaning sadly, we, neither of us knew the Lord well, though we were Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> that sounded wrong at first the way that I read it, anyway. Um, neither of us had any idea that the Lord could give us victory over sin. This stuff I've been preaching to you about Enoch, about God giving us victory, like, there, there's, there are a lot of people out there who think that that does not exist, that we'll just go on sinning and that's okay. No, he had never heard this concept before. He goes on and says, I wanted to be free, but I saw no way out. I loathed myself and figured that this Romans 7 experience, this wretched, wretched man of this body of death, I, think, I figured this was the norm and would be forever. Praise Jesus for Romans 8. About six years ago, I began to search my Bible and to have a real relationship with God. I began to see what he is capable of. My eyes were drawn to one who could break my chains and set me free from sin. I thought there would never be a last time, but there was. There was a last time. I can't tell you the date. I don't remember it. All I can tell you is that pornography, self-abuse, and enslavement to lust are no longer something Satan gets me on. He still accuses me on my past and tries to bring it up, but God reminds me, I have no unconfessed sin here. Just like any other addict, I realize I'm prone to fall here. There are well-worn paths in my brain that may be there until Jesus' second coming, but I don't have to fall into those ruts. And by God's grace, I am standing today on the solid rock because God also calls us not to make provision for the flesh. I have had to make some huge and very important changes that I believe help me in this area. By the way, I think that this issue right here of how radical of changes are you willing to make in your life is the stumbling block that keeps many people from partial victory to total victory, where they keep struggling again because there are areas in their life they don't want to surrender. They don't want to be willing to open up and be vulnerable. They don't want to be willing to throw out what needs to be thrown out of their lives. Let's read on. No TV in the house. Diet changes according to God's original plan. Strengthened marriage and open communication as a safeguard. Frequent reminders of God's ability. So this is this Bible promises thing I was just hitting hard yesterday. Frequent reminders of God's ability to deliver and keep one from falling and to him who is able to keep you from falling. Oh, don't listen to these theological lies out there that he can't do that. Even sharing this now is of great encouragement because I remember how God has worked a miracle in my life. Oh, that we would remember how he has worked for us. That we would understand how he can and will continue to work for our salvation. Praise God for the strength he gives. Praise God for victory through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the Bible says he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Years later now, I got involved in medical missionary work and I'm a pastor of all things. God is so good. 
I really wish my testimony was one that could be shared more freely. So in other words, in anonymous setting like, settings like this, he can share it, which was so thrilling to his heart to be able to help others. I love hearing that. And you know he has a mission now, right? You don't go from being a slave to sin to being freed from sin and doing and thinking nothing. No, you think of Christ and you do the Christian life all out. And that's the only replacement for the life of sin. Todd writes... Thank you for the opportunity to share my testimony on this vital spiritual matter. I do so in the hopes that it can benefit perhaps thousands of young people through your ministry. As you are aware, this is the sin of the hour through which the enemy of souls is doing his very best to destroy the faith of millions on the border of the promised land, the heavenly Canaan, as he did in the type at Kadesh Barnea in the Old Testament. I have learned from my own pitiful experience, as well as that of many in the news, that selfishness if left unchecked, knows no bounds and ends in self-destruction. I came very near to the point of self-destruction as a result. Only the dependable promises of God and His great mercy rescued me. From programs I have watched on ADTV, such as yours, I have learned that the law of the enemy of truth promotes as do, what the, do as you please mindset. Whereas the spirit of Christ's self-sacrificing love is the spirit that pervades heaven. Here are some of the principles that have helped me overcome. By the way, I still have to choose to die to self on this matter, as it always presents itself to try to get me to go down that path again. Each time I choose Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. Number one, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's the principle that has helped him overcome. Because all sin, he says, is based upon lies. That, that we believe, that the world, that the flesh, that the devil tell us these lies, lies that we either believe or tell ourselves to justify ourselves in sin. For example, oh, sexual sin offers these and other lies like, oh, she, will be, she wants to be used for, the, for my pleasure. Well, the reality is she is a human being with thoughts and feelings of her own and nobody wants to be used to others. Hundreds of testimonies of women who have been abused, who have come out of prostitution, who have come out of the pornography industry, reveal this to be true. The fact is that even if she has no living relatives who care for her, God cares about what happens to her and how she is treated. And justice will prevail in the end. I don't want to be a part of that. Another lie, sex is, true, or sex is a true need, like breathing, drinking water, and eating. I'll die if I don't have a sexual release. That's a lie. I can tell you from experience that while the urge can be overwhelming, we can live quite well and perhaps better without sexual release. There are real spiritual and personal benefits to denying ourselves. While I tend to have as strong sexual desires as anyone else, I have lived for many years without a single release. We are told that the, the, the cause of much illness, in spirit of prophecy, we are told that the cause of much illness is inordinate and wanton sexual release. Our sexuality is only a small part of us. Modern media seems to portray that it is the most important part of us. I tend to agree with that. Which, by the way, in, in situations of release nocturnally, which, which, is, which is inadvertently, it's not, it's not self-abuse, it's not sexual uh, infidelity, so no guilt there, but... Anyway, he's sharing what he's talking about here is engaging in sexual practices. Secondly, he says, I have noticed many instances of symbols of death mixed with symbols of lust on some websites, meaning the websites he used to visit, and on vehicles in the form of bumper stickers and the like. That never, I never really thought about that. Symbols of death mixed with symbols of lust. 
Satan is behind this lack of respect for the sanctity of human life. He urges his followers to be, to be followers of pleasure based on this same principle. To be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Christians have to choose to die daily or lose our connection with God. The commitment of baptism is the commitment to die so that we may live with Christ. Living the life of faith is, like, is a lot like scuba diving. We live in an environment, this is a good analogy, we live in an environment that is contrary to spiritual life. This is the, the God of this world and the principles of this world are so just, just, just saturating our culture and everything around us and we're to breathe the atmosphere of heaven in this world. It's kind of like scuba diving, he says. Um, he says, uh, we reply, re rely on our scuba device, Jesus Christ, as the person underwater that we must remain constantly connected to to receive the life-giving air. Con consider the experience of Marilyn Monroe, whom Satan used and then destroyed. Though she was often plagued by depression, when she saw that she was to be on camera, she brightened up under the power of the enemy and became seductive and supernaturally attractive. So you know this lust thing is a satanic agenda. So this is another reason to say no to the sex-crazed media and all its forms. We must feed the lamb, starve the wolf in us, meaning the, 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 the renewed nature and not the carnal mind. It is vital for us to wear the whole armor of God. Good one. Thank you for that, Todd. Steve, I have struggle, struggled to overcome the pornography trap for some time. And at one point, I thought it was finally gone. Yet after not even two years, the compulsion was back, drawing me into the pornographic trap. By the way, I've, I've heard sexual addiction counselor, recovery counselors in, 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 you know, in, in, the, in the clinical world say that in their experience, they, they like to see a two to five window period of time completely pornography and masturbation free in order to be able to start to you know, breathe some sighs of relief that their, that their client is, is, is you know, heading into a, a period of freedom. Like the, basically what he's saying is there's a lot of relapses in the first year or two, especially the first year. So just be aware of that. You don't let your guard down, okay? So he says, I, I love movies. should say, I loved movies. <laughs> I love movies. Action or sci-fi are some of my favorite genres. About two years ago, I was convicted, mainly from what I learned from Media on the Brain, that I should stop with the movies entirely. My wife and I agreed when we got married that we should not have a TV in our house, but we would still occasionally go out to see a movie. But then we watched your seminar and became convicted to stop even that. For quite a while, I was not obliged to view nudity. Then one day I saw this movie that I thought I had to see, and I watched it. Not even 24 hours later, I was overcome with this insatiable compulsion. It was then that I realized that I was not watching that that when I was not watching movies, I no longer had the urge, desire, or compulsion that drew me to porn in the past. It was very easy to resist the devil, and he did flee. See, when you become completely surrendered to God, when you say, I submit myself, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will what? Flee. James 4, 7 and 8. We can't resist the devil and expect him to flee if we're not in submission to God. Because he's got power in our lives. He's got a foothold in our lives, and we invite it. We permit it. Well, that's suicidal, spiritually. If we finally surrender everything and submit to God, then we can resist the devil and he will flee from us, it says. This way he says it became easy. It became easy. And not for, for not everybody would it become easy. One guy wrote me and he said, I just prayed and it totally went away. Well, I've never heard that one before. I have a friend who was an alcoholic, raging alcoholic, and he would just, just, just drink himself into a stupor constantly. He took, he took his last drink. He said, I'm never doing this again. He prayed to God. He, he was converted, and he never wanted to drink again. 
So sometimes God completely removes something like that. But for the most of us, this battle is going to be the character-forming experience that gets us ready for the soon coming of Jesus. So don't view this as a, why doesn't he just take it away from me? It's not fair. No, it's, it's kind of like he's saying, I trust you through this to rely on me. I trust that our relationship is going to work this out unto completion. So maybe take that as a, as a compliment of what, in, of what Christ in you can do if he doesn't take it away from you. Continuing on with Steve's testimony, he says, It was very easy to resist the devil, and he did flee. Then, just last week, I started being tempted by thoughts again. I had no problem resisting, but then the idea of a movie came into mind. I had no idea of what I should watch, but I thought there was bound to be something that I liked out there since I hadn't watched everything, anything in such a long time. I had no intention of going to pornography after the movie, so I thought there was no harm in a movie or two. But shortly after the second movie, there was no way I could resist the urge to look at pornography. I watched one more movie and then woke up to the realization that whenever I watch movies, the devil has permission to enter my life, and I am powerless to resist his temptations. So pray for Steve. And, and right now, by the way, if you're in a situation where you just failed yesterday, you just failed with the lust of your eyes today on the Sabbath, don't let the accuser slam you and keep you down. Because God looks upon you like the prodigal son's father. Do you remember what the prodigal son did? He said to his father, I pretty much wish, I wish you were dead. I want the inheritance that you would give me when you're, when you're dead, and I'm going to ditch the family. This is what, one of the most offensive, horrific things you could do in that culture. There are a number of instances where, where this recorded in these cultures where this has ha- had happened, just like two or three times only in, in recorded history. One of the dads just killed over and died as soon as his son said that because it's just so unbelievable, over the top, that you would say that to your father in that culture. Well, his son went off and spent all of his father's inheritance on prostitutes and and wasted money and parties. He ended up hanging out with the pigs, totally disgusting and depraved in the unclean atmosphere of, of pig feces. And then he goes home to his father. He has the actual gusto to go home to his father. And any normal human father probably uh, would have some words, right? Uh, you know, we're going to have to have a talk first. This, God is not a normal human father. He sees him a long way off. Has the son even repented yet? No. This is God's attitude to you even before you repent, is that he is running to you with open arms. Okay? When you spend a 24-hour period of time in misery and in de- de- degradation and depression because I'm such a failure, why did I mess up? That's the enemy keeping you down. God wants to lift you out right now, out of that miry pit, out of that miry clay and say, I'm going to put a new song in your heart, a song of praise to your God. Many will see in fear, it says in the Psalms. And if we have that respect and love for God, then the angel of the Lord will encamp around those that fear and love him, and we will be taken out of that abyss. Because he says to you, God is love. And he never gets tired of saying, I forgive you. You realize that? He never gets tired of that. He never gets tired of being patient. Because that's what he's like. It's like he can't do otherwise. Mike says, The battle with lust is a battle over appetite. We often overlook the small ways in which God gives us the opportunity to experience victory in this conflict that we all face. It is ineffective for us to focus solely on lust and ask God why he does not take this thorn from our flesh. But if we continue to fail in the smaller battles over appetite, smaller in quotes, we should not be surprised when we fail in larger ways. 
Our victory over lust begins at the dinner table. As Ellen G. White once said, the use of flesh meat animalizes the nature, and if used, it, be, it, it is because a depraved appetite craves it. Its use excites the animal propensities to increased activity and strengthens the animal passions. When the animal propensities are increased, the intellectual and moral powers are decreased. The use of flesh, of, uh, the flesh of animals tends to cause a grossness of body and benumbs the fine sensibilities of the mind. And by the way, it's not just meats and dairy and animal products that cause an increase of the animal propensities. It's any unhealthy living clouds the mind and, de and decrease, decreases the brain's ability and capacity to make sound, firm decisions in a quick period of time with a prefrontal cortex that's firing on all cylinders. So absolutely living in an ultra-healthy manner is crucial in this battle. Tyler says, I am the oldest son. I have a sister, a younger brother. I'm 30 years old now. My father was absent most of the time of my childhood. He betrayed my mother, and he had a child outside of marriage when I was about five years old. My mother forgave him and let him return to our home, but he never lived up to the many second chances that were given to him. He finally left the family in the year 2000. I came in contact with pornography in the age of 15. Despite all of my efforts to completely get rid of this problem over the years, I have never really found victory over this sin. I had never really found victory over this sin. But a few months ago, I started by taking some measures. I reached out to some important people in my life, and I installed covenant eyes, write that one down, covenant eyes, or memorize it, software that tracks my every move online and sends reports to two accountability partners. That's the kind of thing I'm saying. You got to go all out. You got to take steps like this. I have also put aside my smartphone, and now I use a more modest one that can only make phone calls and send text messages. Have you ever heard Media on the Brain seminar where I talk about how we're in love with our iPhones? Neurologically, the love circuits are firing off when we're thinking about our iPhones. So he had to have a divorce from his phone his beloved phone, you might say, oh, you know, I could never do that. Folks, Jesus said, and, and this is hyperbole, of course, don't take this literally, but if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life maimed than to go into hell with your full body intact. It's better to enter into heaven not having had a smartphone. I mean, come on. This is so little. Eternal life we're talking about here. He says, I'm, and I am really trying to have a devotional life, starting my days with Jesus. This is, I believe, the source of power to overcome this sin and every sin. Amen. I have fallen a couple times since, but looking back, I love this attitude. He didn't fall and then enter right back into the spiral and in the, in the cycle of addictive isolation and dark depression. He says, I have fallen a, a couple times, but looking back, I am also grateful I had been worse off before, and I see I've won many battles through God's strength. Do you see the hope in that? You see that, yes, we're making progress. This is the voice of God encouraging. He's in your corner. If I have to sum it up, I would say that Jesus is the only answer to this problem. Amen. I must also do my part. Being on constant and high alert, separating time to be with God, and prayer is so important too. Matthew writes, I'm 27 years old. When I was 13, oh, by the way, Tyler, with this um, abuse and neglect situation from childhood and dad ditched the family and all of this, if you're in a situation like that, it's even more important for you than others to get into good, deep relationships, friendships, whether family or brother in Christ in the church, because you need that intimacy cup filled, if you will. You need to have that human connection, human to human, that you didn't have as a child. And most importantly, receive that from your heavenly Father. 
ultra important because if we're starved of intimacy, then the fake, phony, counterfeit intimacy of a sexually alluring image draws us more because we don't have as much of the real thing, kind of like our Twinkie analogy from the other day. Matthew, I'm 27 years old. When I was 13, my friend came over to my house and introduced me to, a, to pornography on the Internet. After that, I was hooked. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't stop. It was a plague in my life. I just couldn't end it no matter how I prayed. I remember being angry with the Lord because I wanted it out of my life, and I never got victory. Eventually, two years ago, I had enough. I finally surrendered it to Jesus, sincerely this time. So he was angry at the Lord for not giving him victory, but he hadn't surrendered fully yet. For the last year of my marriage, I, was com- I have been completely porn-free. Or I was completely porn Then my wife found another man. I was devastated and heartbroken. I remember thinking that I could never keep away from porn now that this happened. So I surrendered it to Jesus again. He quickly convicted me to go on a new diet. I stopped eating meat. I went on about a three-week fast of just raw nuts, fruits, and vegetables and water to drink. Daniel chapter 1 taught me that this diet could make men wiser and I needed all the help I could get. After just a few days of this diet, I felt a kind of self-control and self-discipline that was unparalleled in the past. Try it. The Lord is now the master of my appetite. Jesus loves us too much to leave us in the bondage of sin. It's not only possible to overcome lust, it's easy for the Lord. There truly is victory through surrender. Dylan says, I asked my girlfriend to marry me. It was... Sorry, that one I did not have the end of, so I'm not reading that one. Josh, the Lord blessed my life by leading me to a marriage divinely appointed SDA lady. My walk in the Spirit had me free from all coffee, alcohol, tobacco, all medical prescription drugs, legal drugs, and due to family medical history and my personal health challenges prior to being drawn to God's remnant movement, my Lord led me to his vegan, raw, two meals a day, Daily and a lifestyle which has disposed of all movies of any rating and all other media and books as well, meaning books of the world, media of the world. Of course, we don't want to do away with all holy books. Um, and, and, and which would allow the fallen ones to enter my home. He gets it. He understands that when we invite worldly things into our home, we invite the demons that are involved with those things into our home as well. Now, as a prideful man who had been raised amidst wealth and a father and mother who blessed me financially in their last will and testimony, my privilege was to travel and give out SDA literature in numerous counties, countries. It was my, my wife who pointed out that my eyes were looking at women. When these eyes, which ought to be only for her, and so the work of the Lord and the Holy Spirit started another step to Christ and his righteousness, this journey by faith. So he had everything together with regard to the coffee and, and the good diet and everything, but his eyes were the one thing he didn't have control of. His wife pointed it out. Being an especially... Now, so this isn't a pornography and self-abuse overcoming testimony, but maybe many of you in here, it's just a matter of that second look, that millisecond, that you know, couple, that, that fraction of a second where you enjoy in that image with that second look. The Lord sees it, even if you don't have a wife noticing. Being in especially trying and tempting situations as a part of my employment. I won't go into those, but basically, they galvanized my dependence upon Him. And my decided goal engaged the cooperation of the promise of Jesus in me. Not I, not I, but Christ in me has produced the fruit of victory day by day. How many people can say they have 
complete victory over the lust of the eyes, not even, not even looking. When you see that image, your eyes literally bounce off and your thoughts are on Christ. Your thoughts are on scripture memory. You're taking a deep breath. You are, you are thinking of that woman's best eternal interest and praying that she would receive a glow tract at the next gas station she goes to or whatever. I mean, pray as the Lord leads you to pray. Holy thoughts that overwrite the sinful thoughts. Oh, I love his testimony. He says he has made this child a very grateful Made, made this child very grateful due to the freedom and relief of the stress and guilt which I, as I walk in the spirit of his living word made flesh. Paul wrote a warning for parents. His dad let him watch movies when he was a kid that had sex scenes in them. He says, we have to be careful what we ex- expose or let our children be exposed to. Being the cool parent can ruin your child's life. This is not a victory story. He's saying his life has been ruined by this. Neither my dad nor I knew that movie would open a door of sexual sins. From the moment I saw that movie, I soon became addicted to pornography, sexually suggested videos, and almost ruined my marriage. Zach says, I thought looking at porn and masturbation was normal for boys. At the time, I didn't know it was wrong and a sin in the sight of God. I was introduced to it when I was almost 16. I was going to school, and the boys were joking around. One of them looked at me and used a euphemism for masturbation, started laughing. I was confused. I didn't know what that meant, so I laughed back and asked my friend what he meant. He explained it. I began to experiment. It seemed all boys I knew looked at porn or sexual images. I thought it was normal, so I continued to look at them and continued in self-abuse. I even thought it was something you were supposed to do. I always try to be an open book, so I let my wife know before we got married, this is me and this is what I do. I even tried to bring it into our marriage. She didn't accept that, and we argued over it a lot. She thought I was going to stop looking at it when, I got, when we got married. I always told myself I could stop any time. I thought I was in control. I came to realize I was addicted and in bondage. And when I was finally convicted and tried to stop, by the way, if you are maybe under that mindset of, you know, it's not that big a deal, uh, a couple times a year, you know, uh, you know, occasionally do this or that, try, just, just for an experiment, see about completely leaving it off and then see how hard that is and you'll realize how much of a true compulsion or addiction it can actually be. He goes on and says, my biggest problem, uh, let me back up actually, he says, it was like a force that made me feel like I had to do it. I know now I was allowing myself to be under the control of Satan. I would go maybe a day without looking at anything and then I would feel a strong pull that I had never, like I had never felt telling me to enjoy myself, there's nothing wrong with it. I felt like a drug addict. Then I would feel so guilty after I indulged in my sexual sins. That's the most dark part of this, how Satan just pushes people down in the, the depths of shame and depression rather than letting Jesus lift you out. My biggest problem was the fact that I didn't let Jesus fight this battle for me. I was thinking I could do it in my own strength. He goes, I, I, I remember one time I went months without any sexual sins. I could see sexual things on TV. Or, that's not a good idea, but I could see women dressed half naked in the store, and I, I'd always look away, and it didn't faze me. I'd be in prayer and let Jesus take control. Then I ceased to do that. So he ceased that connection with Jesus, and he fell back into Satan's snare. And when we let our thoughts take over, they no longer become thoughts. They turn into actions, as Jesus said in Matthew 5. How I overcame is through fasting, praying, living God's eight health laws. Have you heard this a few times? Like most of these testimonies involve health and diet. 
Your diet has a lot to do with lower passions. I did what Job did in 30, Job 31 verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes. I asked God to give me the strength to keep this covenant. Satan has definitely whispered to me about the so-called good times I had serving him. But through continual prayer and energetic and vigilant service of Christ, I have overcome sexual sins. The experience of others has also helped. I hope their experiences are helping you too and giving you hope. But did you hear what he said? He just said it was through continual prayer, through continually serving Christ. So when you have a higher mission, a higher calling, a greater aim, a greater desire that just consumes your life, then it can really replace these things. Luke writes, My addiction started when I was nine years old when a friend introduced me to secret vice, another euphemism for masturbation in the spirit of prophecy. From there, I experienced a lot of confusion and frustration regarding my sexuality and identity. My thoughts would go from adopting homosexuality to bisexuality and even thinking about things I shouldn't mention, which, thank the Lord, I never acted upon. He explains that he continued to engage. Uh, this is me, me writing. I added a parenthetical statement because this one was long. He explains that he continued to engage in self-abuse while in a sexual relationship with his girlfriend who later became his wife and is now sadly divorced. But today, God sends his spirit to first of all convict of sin and righteousness and judgment to come and then to comfort me and reflect upon what triggered me to fall. This is important. I should have talked more about this yesterday. What were the circumstances that precipitated the failure? Identify what was going on in your day. What was going on emotionally? What was, was there stress? Was there a short night of sleep? Was there a disconnection from Jesus Christ? That's always present when we fail in sin. And so ask yourself, what sort of situations are increasing the likelihood for me to enter into temptation? Maybe it's that smartphone again or whatever it is or just health things. You name it. Triggers. You have to identify your own triggers so that you can remove them from your life completely to the extent possible. It also says this, with that knowledge, he encourages, encourages me to set up a plan. So when I am aware of what my triggers are, I can set up a plan and a strategy. And he promises me that he will grant me grace and power to resist the temptation and overcome. He also says, you don't graduate from this issue. You keep fighting it. He says, be serious and honest when you pray. Don't pray vaguely. Go directly to the Lord and say, this is what I've done. I, 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 I know you know what I've done. Just like, read, read Psalm 51. Pray Psalm 51. That's my thought. He also says, you got to do more than praying. Identify the triggers. Develop a plan to stay pure. And I cannot overemphasize the importance of accountability. Have two to three male confidants who will hold you accountable. And again, you don't go to them and open up all the deep, dark secrets, but you say, hey, guys, I want to have greater victory over lust in my life, don't you? Hey, can we start a thing where, you know, we're just kind of asking each other questions. We're saying, how about this one? Uh, your friends ask you direct questions. He's suggesting that your friends just confront you on it. Hey, did you, did you slip up and fail this week? I don't know about that. You, you take that to the Lord. How many times did you watch porn this week? Hopefully the answer is zero. But also a friend who will ask you encouraging questions like, how was your devotional life? This, how was your devotions this morning? Tell me something the Lord showed you in his word this week. Because if you're not, oh, well, I wasn't in the word this week. Now you've got to admit to your spiritual mentor and friend that. And so that might be a little bit of a motivation for you to make sure that you guys can be walking together. Here's a motto for you, he says. Stay pure or die. I used to think this was over the top, but now I know it's true. Last one. Henry says, I am a happily married grandfather and have been a serious SDA Christian for over 60 years. But after a few years, but a few years ago, so this is something that affects you. You don't graduate from this issue, right? Um, he says, I realized that I could hardly stop myself from clicking on ads with scantily clad females no matter what they were selling. Obviously, my character was not where it should be, especially with where I see us going in history right now. 
So I entered on a campaign of praying for the Lord to create in me a clean heart. I continually asked him to help me see women not as sex object, but as the way he had to have seen them when he was here. How did Jesus look at the women in his life, Mary Magdalene and the others, as true, holy uh, citizens of the kingdom, sons and daughters of God, sisters in Christ? There's a reason we use that word sister. Yes, view her like your sister, Paul says. I praise God that he has answered these prayers, and now I can walk through the line at Walmart and not look at the magazine covers to see how much skin is visible. Now, I want to close with faith and works. A couple of paragraphs, and we're done. This closes the whole segments, section of segments on lust. The most important part of all I've saved for right now. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so was the Son of Man lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you are conscious of your sins, do not devote all your powers to mourning over them, but look and live. Jesus is your only Savior, and although millions who who need to be healed will reject his offer of mercy, not one who trusts in his merits will be left to perish. How many people are in this room? A couple hundred? Not one who trusts in his merits will be left to perish. Amen. Thank you, Lord. While we realize our helpless condition without Christ, we must not be discouraged. We must rely upon a crucified and risen Savior. Poor, sin-sick, discouraged soul, look and live. Jesus has pledged his word. He will save all who come unto him. Come unto Jesus and receive rest and peace. You may have the blessing even now. Satan suggests that you are helpless and cannot bless yourself. It is true, you are helpless, but lift up Jesus before Satan. I have a risen Savior, tell him, and in him I trust, and he will never allow me to be confounded. In his name I triumph. He is my righteousness and my crown of rejoicing. Let no one here feel that his case is hopeless, for it is not. You may see that you are sinful and undone, but it is just on account of this that you need a Savior. If you have sins to confess, lose no time. These moments are golden. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, for Jesus has promised it. Precious Savior, His arms are open to receive us, and His great heart of love is waiting to bless us. Some feel that they need to be on probation and must prove to the Lord that they are reformed before they can claim His blessing. But these dear souls may claim the blessing even now. They must have His grace, the Spirit of Christ, to help their infirmities or they cannot form a Christian character. Jesus loves to have us come unto Him just as we are, sinful, helpless, dependent. He sees Himself, the sinner sees Himself as incomplete. His own repentance is insufficient. His strongest faith is feebleness. His most costly sacrifice is meager. And he sinks in humility at the foot of the cross. But a voice speaks to him from the oracles of God's word. In amazement, he hears the message. Hear this message. Ye are complete in him. Now all is at rest in his soul. Kneel with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. How hopeless we would be without him, without his infinite sacrifice, his victory over sin at every step. 
We thank you that that victory can be ours and we thank you that he accepts us in all of the muck and mire and dirt and past. Thank you that each one of us right now with full surrender and submission in our hearts can look to you and say, we trust in your merits. We know that we are complete in you. Father, I ask for any hardened heart who's not prepared to make the ultimate sacrifices needed, that they know and are convicted need to be needed, need to be made, whether that be dietary, media-related, accountability-related, whatever you're asking a soul to do in here right now, I pray that you would just burst through the gates of hell and that you would break through a hardened heart and reach every soul with your message of grace. For we know that only when we are in complete surrender and submission, offering every idol on the altar, will Satan truly be able to flee from us. Father, I know there are many souls in this room who are discouraged as well. May they hear those precious words, ye are complete in him. With all eyes closed, I want to offer an opportunity for any man in this room who wants greater victory and control, the fruit of the spirit of self-control over his eyes to raise your hand before God and the angels and they will count you. They will count all of these hands. Praise the Lord. You may put your hands down. Father, for those struggling in the depths of darkness and isolation who need that encouraging, open-armed acceptance of their Savior, Raise your hand before God. And Father, I pray that you would just love these children, that, that you would say to them right now, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. For that is the message that you gave to your son as he walked this earth. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Give us the mind of Christ, we pray. Give us victory, we pray. There is an individual in here who's wanting to make a firm decision right now about surrendering and sacrificing something in their life that has prevented them from gaining victory some device, some dietary preference, some media, whatever it is that is making provision for the flesh, maybe a relationship. Father, this moment of surrender, I pray that you would impress upon that soul right now to lift his hand before you, to surrender that thing that's hanging on to. Lord, I thank you for the decisions that have been made. For those of us who have been freed for years, I pray that you would give them an opportunity to speak courage and hope into the lives of those who are struggling now. And Lord, give us, each one of us, greater control over our appetites. I know there's not a soul in here that can claim perfection. And we all, though, can claim the perfection of the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But please give us the, the completely new and completely renewed mind. Give us the experience that Enoch had. In Jesus' name. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.